Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Support for MPB comes from C Spire Business Solutions, helping businesses move into the future with next generation fiber optic internet access. More at 855-C-SPIRE-2. C Spire, customer inspired. Good morning. It's 830. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, reaction to an analysis of the third and final presidential debate, plus a look ahead toward the election. Then U.S. Department of Agriculture offers new grants to support farms in Mississippi. In Mississippi, we're really going to be focusing on our continued effort to help African-American farmers Uh, who oftentimes are smaller uh, farmers, be able to develop business plans that would allow them to take better advantage of local and regional food systems. And hearing from parchment prisoners in their own words in today's book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. in Mississippi and the rest of the nation have heard their last debate this presidential election year. Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump faced off in Las Vegas last night and election night is less than three weeks away. With us this morning with analysis of the final debate and a look ahead to the November 8th election are Republican Austin Barber and Democrat Brandon Jones. Both are active in politics in Mississippi and thank you for being with us each of these debates the day after. It's been fun. We've enjoyed it. We've enjoyed it as well and found it very interesting. We're so so sad it's over. (laughs) I bet you are. We're going to start with you, Brandon. How was the third debate? What was your takeaway from it? Uh, It was more sedate the first 30 minutes. It it, it had the sound, at least, of a typical presidential debate, perhaps what people were hoping for throughout the entire process. It uh, ultimately went off the rails, but... As I mentioned to you off off air, Karen, uh, Chris Wallace put on a master class in how to moderate these things. I thought he managed it well. I thought it was wise to throw out the broccoli questions first, so to speak, the things that were not the hot topic du jour type. I have not heard that before. Broccoli so questions? He made them eat their vegetables first. He made them talk about actual policy points rather than getting off into the flashier aspects of this campaign. And so I thought that was smart because what you got was – I think, a more substantive policy conversation for the first 20 minutes than what we've seen so far. Um, but when, when did it go off the rails for you? Whenever uh, Secretary Clinton suggested that Donald Trump would be a puppet of Vladimir Putin, she punched, they, she pushed that three-by-three three red button in the middle of Donald's forehead that he cannot stand, and he ultimately became more and more volatile. And it, the crescendo of this night... And the thing that's going to be your headline in all the papers is that the Republican candidate for the presidency of the United States was not willing to say that he would live with the election results. And that is a unique and historic observation. And so what started out somewhat sedate turned out to provide some real fireworks. Austin, what's your reaction? I mean, look, my reaction is 
I did think Chris Foss did a very good job. Um, I, I like, I think I said on Twitter, he should be the all-time debate moderator, as you and I used to like to probably play all-time quarterback when we were football right. growing up <laughs> in the front yard. He did he did a really good job. He set the right tone from the very beginning. I, I, you know, I need you guys to be civil. I need you guys to answer these questions. He didn't go straight to, you know, emails or uh, allegations that Donald Trump said this or that. He went to, you know, the real issues to talk about. And I thought that was good. Uh, listen, I think, I don't know if you're going to ask me this later, but I'm going to go straight for it. I think the debate was just about a draw. Okay, I think that it could have been a slight win for Trump, except for uh, his mistake of saying, you know, about whether he's going to accept the results on election night. As I sort of skimmed Twitter this morning and looked at the different headlines from around the country, that's the headline in every major newspaper. And that's just a real mistake on his part. I want to interject here because right after the debate. Uh, RNC communications director Sean Spicer says Donald Trump will accept the results of the election 100 uh, percent. His own campaign manager, Kellyanne Conway, told CNN Donald Trump will accept the results of the election because he will win the election. Uh, Mike Pence, his vice presidential running mate, has said he will accept the results of the election. Are these people speaking out of turn or have they consulted with Donald Trump? Nobody consults with Donald Trump. Let's just get real. I mean, nobody ever has this so whole campaign. they're just campaign. saying that hope. It's wishful no, thinking. I mean, they're saying that that's because what you have to do. And I'm sure on election night, and look, he's most likely going to lose. I mean, just look at the polls. It, it's, I mean, things can change. Um, you know, I, 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 it, it makes me sad that Hillary Clinton may be president, is likely to be president. That's very upsetting to me. But on election night, we have to accept these results. He, But he just made a big mistake. It's just who Donald Trump is. He takes these positions, and he doesn't budge. It's really why he's very popular with, with a certain percentage of the American population, because dadgummit, he's going to build a wall. He's not going to do this. He's not going to do that. He stands up for certain things. But on this one, he's just wrong. Let and me ask everybody you. around him knows that he's wrong, except for him. And that really hurt him last night. Um, did this debate hurt him or help him? Could it have helped him in the polls, Brandon? The window for him to do anything meaningful on November 8th has been closing very rapidly for the last several weeks. And so to say that he could have done anything last night that would have really helped him is probably not fair because I think the cake is baked at this point. But what he could have done is what we've seen good candidates do in the past, which is to be cognizant of the fact that the country is going to keep going after this campaign, that there are people running lower down the ballot that need my help that I care about my party advancing its positions in the legislature and in Congress. And what he did was take all of these Republican Senate candidates and congressional candidates that are in marginal races, and he gave them a bad headline to deal with this morning. And what Donald Trump has done, and I think Austin said it very well, is he has made this all about himself. And so as he was flailing up there last night talking about you know, how he would not accept the results of the election, he put his other people and, you know, folks on his ticket in an exceedingly bad position, and he made it all about him. You know, I didn't say that he tried to make it about himself. He does do that a lot. 
Now, what what I did say is is that he tapped into an anger throughout, particularly the Republican Party, but not just Republicans, with some Democrats and some independents this year, because obviously he grew the electric in the Republican primary, and it was this anger where they're, you know, they're very upset at Washington. Many were upset at Barack Obama. They don't like where the country's going um, for on a number of different reasons, and he spoke to that anger throughout the primary, and he continued to do it. His failure was. He did not reach outside that. Yeah, and, and I think we would both agree. To, to, to grow the electorate, to give himself an actual chance to win. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton a little bit. Still the trust issue. Did she do anything last night to help herself? She gave two of the best answers she's given throughout the entire debate process. One of them was on the economy, and she did that very – so that was one thing that she did. She handled quite well. She got a lot of dense policy material into that answer without seeming overburdened, which she can sometimes do. She did another thing that was really smart in terms of planting some of those seeds that ultimately led to Mr. Trump's unraveling as the debate went on. But when it came those to that really critical moment where Mr. Wallace asked the candidates to give their two-minute elevator pitch on why they should be president, she struck a, a great tone and said something that I think a lot of people could relate to and resonate with. And bless his heart, you know, by contrast, he got personal again. So I You're think she showed very she well. She reached the undecideds with that. I think so. And I, and I think, look, at this point, undecideds are people who just don't, don't want to tell people on the phone who they're voting for. Let's yeah. be honest. Look, I, I, don't think any, I don't think either candidate moved, you know, the, the needle that much. This is what I, I did not like about Hillary Clinton last night. I thought she was really talking to the far left of her base last night. Uh, she started it from the very beginning when they were talking about Supreme Court nominees. And instead of saying, hey, I want to appoint a Supreme Court nominee who's going to just you know, read the, the Constitution and interpret the Constitution, she starts talking about all the different social issues and all – we're not going to just – they're not going to focus just on big businesses and rich people. They're going to focus on you know, the little people and so forth. It just made me want to vomit. I must be honest with you. And then she starts talking about free college education. Then she says, we're going to go where the money is, the rich people and corporations, because she wants to go raise taxes. She was screaming to the left last night, and I think that was a real mistake, because I think that there, in 10 seconds there are female Republican voters, particularly in the suburbs, who don't like Donald Trump, who would potentially go for her. But I think she loses a lot of those people. They might not vote for anybody. Uh, because of how she acted last night. That's what I want to get to. I asked you guys the last time after the last debate whether people would stay home from the polls, that people can't really vote for either one because they're both, as we've heard, the worst candidates ever in a presidential election. Will it be a low turnout? Um, I, it's just so hard to predict. Look, th- there are a lot of big races on the ballot. There are big time go- governor's races, Senate races all throughout the country. Those, you know, They're going to draw people out. Um, I, I think it'll probably be a, a similar turnout to, um, you know, average races in the past. But I, I don't know. It's hard to predict that. Brandon? As this thing is going on, she's no longer at a historic low for a candidate anymore. So we're no longer talking about a historic unfavorable rating. So just to be fair, that that has shifted somewhat. We could debate whether that's credit to her or the, her opponent. But um, she she could very well, as this thing goes on, scare 400 electoral college votes. This is getting more and more of taking the shape of being in one of the most historic blowouts in modern presidential elections. And so turnout or no, this is this could be a, a, a pretty historic landslide. Well, and you're going to have an independent candidate that's going to win Utah. 
Yeah. All right. We only have like 45 seconds. So real quickly, is this going to create uh, a water divide in the United States because of the enthusiasm for both candidates and the repulsion from both sides? This this is where the comments by Mr. Trump are so hurtful because the candidates helped to set the tone. And Austin and I do not want the answer to that question you just asked to be yes, because we want to see our government be effective. And so I hope not. And, but it'll take someone bigger than Mr. Trump to help to set that tone. And, and Democrats are going to have to be graceful winners Austin, as well. Austin, you get 15 seconds. Yeah, I mean, listen, it, this is a, sort of the Republican side. We'll have to see how the Republican Party decides to rebuild itself and go um, um, figure out how to target and message to voters. We'll see on November the 9th. Austin Barber and Brandon Jones. And Austin, we're going to remember that you want to vomit. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Up next, U.S. Department of Agriculture offers new grants to support farms in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From the Capitol steps to your front door, MPB News covers the state like no one else. Our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life. MPB News, online at mpbonline.org and on MPB Think Radio. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue, the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. Republican legislative leadership wants to re-examine the state's education funding formula for public schools. We have been fighting to see that the teachers have what they need to instruct our children. They want to know if there's a way to get more money into classrooms. MAAP is a very complicated formula. We take a closer look at the Mississippi Adequate Education Program on At Issue this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB-TV. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. More than a half million dollars of new grants is heading to Mississippi rural areas going through hard economic times. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced the Rural Economic Development Grants yesterday. Grants will go to groups in Mississippi and other states to help promote their products and diversity their, or diversify their farms. We spoke with Tom Vilsack, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. He says the latest grants are part of a continuing belief that rural economies can thrive again. This announcement that we're making of $7.6 million for Rural Community Development Initiative and the Socially Disadvantaged Group Grant Program is, is an ongoing commitment and effort that uh, the Department of Agriculture and the Obama administration have made to revitalize uh, and renew the rural economy. Uh, 24 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, are going to benefit from these grants. In Mississippi, we're really going to be focusing on our continued effort to help African-American farmers uh, who are oftentimes are smaller uh, farmers, be able to develop business plans that would allow them to take better advantage of local and regional food systems, which is part of our strategy to, to rebuild uh, rural America and at the same time provide help and assistance to socially disadvantaged producers. There are three entities in Mississippi, each receiving $175,000. The first is the Tri-County Agricultural Cooperative. It's in Charleston. What's going to happen there? How will that money be used? Well, this is an opportunity for us. We have a a thing called Strike Force where we're focused on persistently poor areas. And what will happen is that they'll use that resource to uh, uh, bring folks in to give them some technical assistance on how to put together a business plan, have them analyze the market opportunities, have them uh, rethink what they are, are currently doing to see if there might be more profitable opportunities uh, or whether they, by banding together, uh, can form small co-ops uh, that would in turn provide access to new markets, whether it's a restaurant or a local school. 
uh, to be able to take part of this growing local and regional food uh, movement in the country. Uh, it was at one point in time a $5 billion industry. Today it's about a $14 billion industry and it's going to grow to $20 billion in the next uh, couple of years. And so we want to make sure that uh, folks who have been struggling see this as a new opportunity to consider. In that description, I see it says help 200 African-American farmers diversify their farms. Diversify in what way? And you said looking for markets, or is that actual crops that are being grown? It's both. It's basically understanding what's uh, what the need is locally. Uh, you know, it may be that there are local schools that are interested in purchasing uh, fruits and vegetables that these guys could potentially grow, um, but they may not be aware of that market, so they're not thinking about growing that crop. Uh, or they may be growing their crop and just may not know uh, precisely where and how many options they have for marketing it, whether it's a farmer's market or uh, a local restaurant. And being able to link uh, those producers with market opportunities is what helps to create profit for them and keeps them in business, helps them uh, in turn spend money in the community, and basically those resources roll around several times. And it's one of the reasons why we're beginning to see an improved economy in rural areas. We're seeing unemployment come down. Poverty has come down at the fastest rate in 25 years, and um, food insecurity among people, particularly among children, is is uh, uh, at record lows. So it's it's important for us to continue the momentum. And as you probably know, in Mississippi, we have what's called uh, what are called food deserts, and there are quite a few of them. And there is an effort ongoing to get people access to fresh fruits and vegetables. There is, and uh, that that involves expanding farmers' markets, which uh, we've seen a, a rather significant expansion of farmers' markets in this administration. It involves basically working with food comp- food chains, uh, grocery store chains, to encourage them to consider locating uh, full-scale grocery stores or even uh, scaled-down grocery stores in those food desert areas. Uh, and it's also improving uh, the selection of food that uh, folks may have if, if it's just a convenience store that's basically... Uh, providing service, uh, making sure that they have um, expanded choice, that they've got some fresh fruits and fresh vegetables and uh, in the basic four uh, food groups that they have enough choice that uh, people can get uh, satisfied without necessarily always relying on processed food. Among the three uh, entities receiving a $175,000 grant is the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives in Jackson. Is that specifically to expand access to fruits and vegetables? Is this cooperative sort of the middleman from farm to consumer? It is in the sense that it helps to aggregate uh, sufficient quantities that you're in a position to have uh, larger quantity sales, which can oftentimes provide a higher price. Uh, Oftentimes it's very difficult for an individual farmer to know uh, how to go about marketing their product uh, or to be able to expand uh, the horizon in terms of who might be willing to purchase their their product. When farmers band together in a co-op, it basically provides them uh, power uh, in terms of the ability to say we've got a significant quantity of of a particular product available, and and it allows the... uh, review of the market opportunities to be a bit more expanded. And that, occurred, of course, will, uh, we think, result in, in more profitability and potentially stable and secure relationships uh, between uh, maybe it's a grocery store, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's a school, uh, so that this doesn't just become a one-off circumstance, but it becomes a year-to-year uh, opportunity. U.S. Department of Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. Take care. Up next, hearing from Parchman prisoners in their own words in today's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. On Creature Comforts, we talk about Mississippi's abundant wildlife with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and a special guest each week. Also, Dr. Troy Major is on hand to answer questions about your pets. I'm Kevin Farrell. Join us Thursday mornings at 9 with a repeat broadcast Saturday mornings at 6 for Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Parchment Prison is legendary in Mississippi for its isolation and rough conditions. Prisoners there are recognized by their striped uniforms and handcuffs. But what about their interior life? What are they thinking? Louis Bourgeois wanted to know, so he found a way to teach a writing class to prisoners at Parchman. The results have been published in the new book, Unit 30, New Writing from Parchman Farm. We spoke with Bourgeois about the collection in today's book club. He says teaching Parchman prisoners was a combination of education and self-exploration. Initially, we started classes to get writing that we wanted to publish from Mississippi inmates, and then we started to get into the educational aspect of that. And so the program has grown primarily from that premise. Did the inmates know then, since they took a class, that they would be writing for the public, or did some of them simply write for themselves and did not want their writing to become public? Yeah, that, that, uh, that was explained, of course, at the beginning, because there are contractional issues that would we have to deal with. So uh, at the beginning, we explained what our motive was. And then there were some who opted out who did not want to to go public, but most were, were quite excited about the prospect. Running down the list of the titles, a few of them, Loneliness, The Truth, Mommy, Going the Wrong Way, Hard Knocks. Right. Some of those certainly indicate that the person might be in prison, you know, loneliness and hard knocks sure. and certainly. And probably some of that has to do with the type of literature that I expose them to, which is just sort of, you know, not backing off from the truth kind of stuff. That, that causes some trouble, you know, because it's not necessarily, I mean, it's truthful work, and that's what we're interested in, but it's not necessarily optimistic, and, and that can be an issue when, when you're dealing with prisons. Did you call these stories from many others? Yeah, so, yeah, I would say that this collection, the new one, maybe a third, actually, of what was written. I mean, they wrote a lot. That, I mean, that's, that's the curious thing is, once they understood what they were doing, they took off with it. That's always been the case with this program. We get a lot more work than, than what we publish. Which I want to follow up on a little bit. Do the inmates, for the most part, find this to be that it's good for them because they know they're being heard? It's a freeing experience. Can you talk a little bit about what the benefits are to them? Yeah, I can, of course, talk all day about that. But, <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point for them. I mean, the most basic thing is that most of these people have never been, as you just said, you know, been heard in their whole lives, really. And I'm generalizing, but for the most part, they've only been perceived in a negative light. And this is the first time they get to stand up and tell their side of things. Not necessarily in terms of what they've done, but just how they feel. So, yeah, for them, some of the inmates have told me straight out that the class is basically their only reason for getting up. So... If we can provide that for anyone, regardless of what they've done or who they are, I mean, that's, that's kind of tremendous. 
There are about 50 in here. They're pretty short. Were these written as individual pieces or did you take these uh, pieces out of larger writings? Most of the work is just like um, individual pieces that were assigned in class. But yes, there are a couple instances in which it is uh, the work is taken from a larger piece. I take it we can expect more books? Uh, yes, uh, insofar as um, you know, MDOC allows us to keep going, I think they will. Yes, we will continue on with more writing. But also the, the program is expanding into, uh, we did our first theater workshop in Holly Springs this past spring semester. And uh, we want to do, uh, we want to conduct some some art classes and maybe some art will, will come out eventually. So, yeah, I'm really excited about going. I mean, writing is always going to be our primary focus, but we have other artistic interests as well. This book is called Unit 30, New Writing from Parchment Farm. It is edited by Louis Bourgeois. Louis, thank you very much. Thank you, Karen. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for local Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up, Money Talks in Legal Terms and Southern Remedy. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. It's Marketplace.